Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we can encounter your word. Your word is life. It speaks truth, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the living word, that you are revealed as we uh, take this time to explore your word. God, I pray you would open our hearts to a deeper understanding of who you are and a deeper encounter through Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen. So I'm at the stage of life where uh, the boys know when dad is gone. If I have a meeting in the evening, say a church meeting or something, um, they, they know when I miss bedtime and are often not pleased that they can't come out with me. They like having me present. I remember looking forward when I was a kid to when dad would come home because dad's presence was calming. They made everything feel more comfortable, more right, more good. And it's the same now with our boys. They love to be right next to me, to cuddle up next to me, to lay down and read a book together. Just to be held, there's a longing for my presence, which is wonderful as a dad to experience. We also long for God's presence. Whenever we look for God uh, to come and set right our broken world, we're experiencing a longing for him to do only what he can do in terms of justice and community and relationships, to set things right. And amazingly, we read here in this passage not only do we long to be with God, but God longs to dwell with us. He chooses to come and live with his people. And this is a huge statement that should really kind of knock us off our feet. God is not wanting to be somewhere distant apart from his creation. God's desire is to come and make his home here among us. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that humanity enjoys life in God's presence and in our rebellion that we we lose that relationship but here in Exodus 25 God is telling us that he is committed to restoring access to his presence living and dwelling with us he's going to do that through the tabernacle and by dealing with their sin and all of this this idea of God dwelling with us dealing with our sins so we can be gathered in his presence uh, is foreshadowing Jesus and his work and the atoning work on the cross that he does for us. So this section, God gives Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle, building this sort of sacred tent, this place where God is going to come and dwell in the middle of his people. But before we get to the instructions, it begins with a heart check. In fact, I've talked about three points in this passage is that God desires our hearts and he wants to dwell in our presence and he's going to deal with our sin. He desires our hearts, he wants to dwell in our presence, and he's going to deal with our sins. The first one is that God desires our hearts. There's a heart check. God is first and foremost concerned with your heart, to have a heart after God. And so we ask the people in these first few verses to contribute resources to the tabernacle. He didn't demand compulsory giving. He wanted those who would be willing to give to contribute. Verse 2, God does not force your worship or force your giving, but he does call us to it, invites us into it. 
And our offerings are a sacrifice. We are denying ourselves something to follow what God has for us. God calls for specific contributions. Notice that the tabernacle and the furniture are unique. And the closer you get to the center of the tabernacle, uh, the more precious the metals. The, The detail here is pointing to God's holiness. We are not on equal footing with God. He is holy. We are not. And he is setting the terms of how we encounter him. Now, these resources that God invites the people to give are not even Israel's originally, right? They're the Egyptians' materials. And God had promised back in Exodus 3 that the Israelites would not leave Egypt empty-handed. So God had actually provided the goods, and now he's inviting the people to return to him a portion of that gift. And you know, the same is true for us, isn't it? We're called to give of what God has given us. My money, my time, my talents and abilities. These are all gifts of God and I'm called to steward them. I've been entrusted with them for a portion of my life. And I'm called to now give generously of all that I've been given as an act of worship. I don't hoard my blessings for myself, but I'm to give them back to God and give them back to the community of faith. How has God gifted you? And where are you called to give and to serve in the community of faith? All of that begins with a heart check. The people are called to reflect and consider their willingness to give, to contribute, to be part of what God wants to do. Sometimes I think when we think about the community of faith, the church that we're part of, we can tend to get into this mode where we think of it primarily as my self-fulfillment, right? I'll, I'll go where I like the music or I go where I like the preaching or there's a kid's program. And some of that stuff does matter. Sound doctrine matters. You know, caring for a whole family matters. The danger is when we start to think of church as just about something I go to to get something for myself. Because biblical spirituality, following Jesus, is not about catering to my tastes. It's primarily not about me, but about God. He's the primary actor, not me. And so when I gather with the community of faith, I do so because it's God's idea that we come together, that we come together as a people from every tribe and nation, because it's in community and in relationship that we then are are caused to grow, to, to grow deeper as disciples as God meets us together. And this is how we can serve, by giving some of our time to each other, to seek to love them. It's not so much about what can I get out of it, but how can I give to it? And greater than that, to be ministered to by God himself, to come so we can know together again, we are forgiven, we are encouraged, we are sometimes convicted, we're equipped as a body to go and to serve. After the heart check, we begin to hear God's plan, and his plans to come and dwell with his people. And verses 8 to 9 talk about the presence of, uh, the purpose of the tabernacle. This is a holy place, God's presence to dwell in their midst. And it's God's presence that makes the place holy. In fact, sometimes I think when we talk about the sanctuary as the room out there, that's not really the best term 
On the other hand, it's a great term because sanctuary refers to a holy place. And when God comes and fills the place with his presence, it does become holy. But in the details of the construction and, and in the worship practices, God is helping them understand how he who is good and holy can dwell in the midst of sinful and disobedient people. And Jesus is going to bring all of those themes to conclusion. Jesus claimed that he himself was the temple. He's the embodiment of God's presence. Think about that. The long history of thinking about tabernacle and temple now uh, embodied in one person. Just the mystery and the beauty of that idea. And that in him, in Jesus, the tabernacle and the temple, and all that they mean is fulfilled. God has come to be with us. In fact, that's how John 1 starts, right? And in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. And that's tabernacle and temple language again, where God's glorious presence dwells. But now in Jesus. In fact, the, one of the first questions the disciples ask in John's Gospel is actually the question at the heart, I would say, of every man and woman to ever live. It's the question, where are you staying? And in short, behind that is the question, God, where do you dwell? And may I also dwell with you. Beneath that question of the disciples wondering how they can remain and abide in Jesus, is actually the deepest longing of every human heart to be found and loved by God. To live in his presence, to be forgiven, to come home. And now Jesus has welcomed us home through Christ, through himself. Now the actual tabernacle instructions span chapters 25 to 31, and you can uh, read about how the actual building project of the tabernacle actually spans chapters 35 to 40. You can read those almost in parallel. And I'm not going to go through all those again. I'm going to just kind of summarize some of these themes. The first thing I want to say is the tabernacle and its furnishings, and indeed the worship itself, is all highly symbolic in two major ways. The first way is that the tabernacle is like the tented place, the palace of Israel's divine king. And that's why we talk about God being enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, in the innermost holy of holies. This is where God the King uh, presides. And the other important symbolic dimension has to do with the Garden of Eden. Eden is the place where God's presence dwells in a sort of temple garden, right? Where heaven and earth uh, overlap, so to speak. And the various details of the tabernacle construction are meant to remind the worshiper of the Eden garden. You have an east-facing entrance, for instance, uh, guarded by cherubim. Uh, the lampstand is a reminder of the tree of life, and so on and so forth. And why would that be? Well, God wants to highlight that by entering this tabernacle, by entering his presence, they are stepping forward towards the restoration of paradise. And this, again, is brought to fullness in Jesus and its full consummation in Revelation 21-22. And to really highlight how all of that works, I'd like to invite you to watch this Bible Project video on the temple. So let's watch that together now. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see 
is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? 
Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. So we've seen how this begins with a heart check. God desires our hearts. And then as he asks us to examine our hearts, he has the promise to come and dwell with us. He wants to be in our presence. He wants us to be in his presence. And finally, God will deal with our sin. And this brings us to the mercy seat and to atonement. And and this all points ahead to Jesus. They construct the altar for sacrifices and it just emphasizes to the people as they would come that the only way to come and access God's presence is through the way of sacrifice. Communion with God requires sacrifice for our sins. The altar was the first thing a worshiper would see when entering the tabernacle grounds and its massive size would confront you with the enormity of your own sin, the massive gap between us and God. And all of this again shows us the gospel. God wants a relationship with us. But we are sinners. We've turned away from God. We missed the mark. None of us can come into the presence of God on our own. We can't make it back to the garden on our own. But a way has been provided. The blood and sacrifice offered by the high priest for Israel's sins would provide atonement. One would be substituted for another. And this, again, foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice needed to fully end and and distinguish, uh, extinguish the effects of sin where God himself in Christ will come and shed his own blood for you and for me. And where in Eden, the cherubim, these angelic beings, would guard humanity from re-entering the garden, now in Exodus, at the tabernacle, and in the Gospels, at the garden, where they come to see the missing body of Jesus at the resurrection. The angelic hosts are not keeping people away from God's presence, but now actually welcoming them back into a sort of Eden through the bloodshed because of Christ's atonement and back into the presence of God, back into relationship with him. And all of this is telling us God and sinner can be reconciled. All this points to Jesus, the greater and truer tabernacle. The one who came and fleshed to dwell with us and gave his life to destroy the power of sin and death forever. Jesus is the mediator, the one who sheds his own blood to redeem sinful humanity. He shed his blood for me. He shed his blood for you that we can enter in. He was forsaken so that we, by grace, through faith, can enter into God's presence and find salvation life. We now enter through a torn veil and behold his glory. Listen to how Hebrews 10 puts it. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. How do we dwell in the presence? There's only one way. 
And God has set up the terms. It comes through Jesus Christ. It's an exclusive claim. This is the only way to find forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. But it's an inclusive invitation. God extends it to each and every person to repent and to believe, to come and find life. Because of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven and we can know the restored presence and relationship with God. We check our hearts. God desires our hearts. God's come to dwell with us. And he's disabled the power of sin and death. 1 John 4.10 says this, This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. My prayer this morning, my friend, is that you know the salvation of Jesus, the amazing grace and redemption that he offers for us because of his bloodshed at the cross, that because of his victory, his sacrifice over sin and death, we can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can enter into the presence of God and dwell again with him. In fact, the Bible says he's come to dwell within us through the giving of his Holy Spirit. And I pray that that would encourage you, friends, as you navigate this week, as you go into work or go into school, as you worry about the, the anxieties of what the future might hold or struggle to maybe give that over to God sometimes. I just pray you would be encouraged, reminded that uh, God loves you so much. He gave his life for you. You can live in the assurance of his grace and his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, that you are with us, going before us. Lord, I pray that you would bless the work of our hands. Each one, Lord, with the task before them this week, would you go before and minister your grace, your healing, and your peace as we would go. Lord, as you would send us out, may we go uh, alive, equipped with your gospel, and the words we speak, and the things we would say, in our ability to learn to listen to each other, Lord, I pray for those who cannot come out, who are stuck at home, who are facing loneliness. Jesus, would you come? Bring healing, bring life. Help us to reassure, help us to be a community of faith together. Lord, for each one, whether it's online or in person this morning in a church gathering, we thank you that you are at work in our city. We continue to pray your protection, your health, wisdom over our students, our teachers, our school officials, as we navigate the return to fall. Lord, have your hand upon us. We thank you, Jesus, for your protection and your grace and your health in our community. We continue to give you praise for that, Lord. Help us to be adaptable, Lord. As times shift, as things maybe change, we may take a step back, things may close up again, things may open up more. Lord, as we walk through this road, would you guide us? Take our hand, Lord, and lead us. We fear no evil, for you are with us. We will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your presence to dwell with us. And Lord, we also recognize that some of us who struggle with anxiety, it's easy to give in to fear, to be anxious and afraid. God, we cast that off today and we pray that you would fill us with an assurance of your grace and your life. And peace, Lord, to know that you have got us. The one who made the world holds each one of us in the palm of his hand. 
Lord, we thank you for your life and your grace today. Go with each one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, receive this benediction. Children of God, who are loved and forgiven in our Lord Jesus Christ, may you know that he desires your heart. He loves you so much. May you dwell in his presence and know what it means to abide in relationship with Jesus. And may you know that he has dealt fully and forever with the effects of sin. Let us repent and believe and step closer and deeper to him as we seek to live out our faith. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Love you very much. Hope to see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.